This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the Faculty Innovation Center of the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, so, Darren, have you had a chance to say hello? I know I'm the last one on the call here. Michelle and I were on, and then Katie joined, and my cat joined, <laughs> and then you got on. So. Okay, Michelle, could you make I am in a new place. Are you comfortable with the sound? Yeah, you sound really good. I like it when you say really good. That's our pep talk, Darren, you see. We always need a little pep talk. <laughs> we're, not, we're not aiming for fine. We're aiming for really good. You know my motto, style over substance, always. Here we go. We are as people shapes who we are as teachers about how our lived experience informs our teaching uh, we can be flexible and adapt and change this you're, you're free to do that we don't have to have it perfect we are about getting folks together from all walks of teaching life the key phrase you, you suggest there is it, it has to be done collectively we have so much to learn from the other side of campus <laughs> from the university of texas at austin This is The Other Side of Cannabis. Hi, I'm Stephanie Seidel-Holmston, Assistant Professor of Instruction in the College of Liberal Arts and a Provost Teaching Fellow. And I'm Katie Dawson, Associate Professor of Theater in the Theater and Dance Department in the College of Fine Arts and a Provost Teaching Fellow. Today, we are talking with Dr. Darren Shaw. Professor Shaw earned his PhD from the University of California, Los Angeles. He's currently a professor at the University of Texas in the government department. His research and teaching interests include American government, campaigns and elections. Like I say, every four years, I'm popular. Political parties, public opinion and voting behavior and applied survey research. We are in it now, the heart of the moment. I must admit, I love elections. Before Darren's time in academics, he worked for several political campaigns and really throughout his academic appointments, he has worked on elections, including at least two presidential election campaigns. He has served with both President George W. Bush as well as with President Barack Obama. Darren, you and I are colleagues Back in the days of the water cooler, we would have conversations about research and teaching, and I know that you are the right person for today's conversation, so welcome. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We know that so much of what and how we teach is based on who we are, so we often like to begin by talking a bit about your personal and professional background. How did you get interested in politics? Uh, I'm sorry, Stephanie, that's really none of anybody's business. (laughs) Uh, I was unsure of the concept here, and I think... What? (laughs) No, 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 no. (laughs) Well, I think like, like probably a lot of people who are, you know, get into politics or drawn to politics. My family was pretty political. I was born and raised in San Diego. My uh, grandparents came to San Diego from Omaha around the 1950s. So it's sort of this Midwestern Catholic family that uh, set off for uh, San Diego. So it was just sort of my grandparents and my parents. And I remember one of my earliest memories was, you know, they would have these conversations about politics in California. People who are old enough to remember politics that they might remember something called Proposition 13, which was a very controversial proposition on the California ballot. I think it was 1978 where they were going to freeze property taxes in California from the time at which you purchased your house. This was designed to protect people who had moved in 
like my grandparents to San Diego in the 1950s from these unbelievably accelerating property values in California. And I remember my grandparents were arrayed on one side of the issue, very much in favor of Prop 13. And my mother, who had two kids in the public schools, was very much against Proposition 13. You know, my brother and I were in the San Diego Unified School District at the time, and I would kind of listen from the other room as they would talk and argue and go back and forth about this. And, you know, I tell the story just because I think whether we like it or not, we're products of our environment. And if politics was sort of the coin of the realm, a lot of us understood the value of that coin and got interested in it and were drawn into those conversations. And so, so I guess my roots go all the way back to some of those weird arguments of the 1970s. You know, my, my students don't oftentimes want to hear how influential their parents and their family are on their interests in politics. And, and it's, you know, it's not to say that they're going to adopt their parents' positions or preferences. But, you know, we, we want to be part of those conversations that our parents are in and that our teachers are in, our friends are in. And, and if, if those conversations revolve around politics, I think there's a, there's a much higher chance, there's a much greater incentive for you to learn about those sorts of things. And, you know, so even, even my students who are complete opposite sides of the aisle from their parents, probably need to acknowledge that, well, the fact that they're politicized might have something to do with the environment they were raised in. And it's such a big thing that college, particularly for our undergraduate students, does for them is, right, exposure. It brings them into those dialogues and spaces that they might not have been having in their home life. I appreciate that reminder that, particularly when we're teaching our our first-year students in undergrad, they're really coming in from that space. And They may not have been in a place where they're with people who have different viewpoints or experiences as much as they thought before. That's right. I mean, you know, my family kind of had some conflicts too strong, but, you know, there were strong differences of opinion, right, on some political issues. A lot of kids come from political families where they're all singing the same tune or singing from the same hymnal, right? And they come to college, they come to a place like University of Texas, and they encounter different opinions from the first time. And, and, you know, three of us and everybody else here have have to navigate that and help them feel comfortable with those sorts of differences and to learn from them and and appreciate them. This sort of a sense of a politicized conversation in the home, you know, some of the research by Jennifer Lawless and Fox looks at what helps young people maintain a political ambition into college. And they find that these conversations at home about politics and then keeping politics in your life, even as you go to college, can really continue to maintain an ambition to run. So it's good to think about those conversations at home. And I think you're right that sometimes those conversations, though, don't always reflect opposing viewpoints. And so modeling how to have a conversation with respect about things that we might disagree is unusual. Yeah, I think, you know, there's kind of two levels that you like to operate on. The, the first is this notion that there are competing viewpoints and that, you know, part of critical thinking and part of being an informed citizen, certainly a student at the University of Texas, is, is sort of understanding those opinions, understanding the range and scope of those opinions. And, you know, because of that, having greater sort of contextual understanding. The other thing that I love to do in class, and, you know, Stephanie, you and I have talked about this offline, I think, is... You know, giving them value beyond simply serving as a forum for people with liberal or conservative viewpoints to yell at each other. I, for me, that's lurking in the background. But what I think our obligation is, is to say, OK, these are the debates that are going on. But let's let's see if we can provide some theory, provide some context, provide some history. 
so that these differences take on a different shape and form. When we're talking about campaigns and elections, and, and my students are, are freaked out about the, the stakes of 2020 and the conflict in 2020, you know, we'll say, okay, well, let's let's take a look at some great campaigns from American history, 1800, you know, and 1860, you know, 1932. And it's not to say that these times are just another speed bump in the road. I think they are kind of unprecedented. But we certainly had conflict. We certainly had tension. We've had clashes of great ideas. We've had intense conflict before. So what do we make of that? How did it play out? What what did the system look like? What sorts of adjustments were made? I mean, I, I think, you know, when our students go back home for Thanksgiving, what you'd like is not that they just have additional ammunition to be liberal or conservative, but that, you know, their parents say, well, what'd you learn in your government class as a, as a professor to try to try to give them something beyond what they can read in the New York Times. You know, and I would think in that regard as well to understand that baked into the system is a value for conflict and what conflict can help us produce. When I worked in Washington, D.C., it was through a conflictual conversation that we could come to a solution that satisfied as many folks in the room as possible. And so that conflict, the fact that a Republican might disagree with a Democrat is exactly the debate we need to make sure that we don't get too entrenched in just one way of doing things. We should always be debating the right balance between the market and the state or a variety of other issues, I'm sure. But that conflict is is a part of the system. It's not a sign of a weakness of the system. You know, my, my daughter is a big John Mulaney fan, you know, the comedian. And he has a line about, uh, you know, he and his friend are having a conversation, a disagreement. And John Mulaney, uh, just says, you know, the, the thing about my opinions are I am frequently wrong. <laughs> and I think that's that's kind of a motto I like to, to bring into this. And it, it doesn't mean you don't know things. You know, as, as professors, uh, I, I think you really want to show to your students some humility in the face of the things that we study. That that's, that's lesson number one, right? Is you don't know as much as you think you know. But it doesn't mean you don't know anything. And, and so you kind of start with what are those things that we, we think we have a handle on and what can we make of these big challenges and questions in, in light of that? It, it, I think that humility goes a long way towards tolerating other viewpoints and the possibility that, as John Mulaney said, I could be wrong. You know, there have been a lot of things I, I thought were fairly self-evident. And if you ask me five years later, I, I have to admit that didn't go quite like I had expected it to. Well, it makes me think, too, a lot about perspective taking and how part of really practicing the act of perspective taking is listening and deep listening to someone else's viewpoint and trying to get the contextual factors, the lived experience that's, you know, obviously being embodied by that individual that's shaping that perspective and trying to understand, you know, where that's coming from and where that may or may not bump up against your lived experience and what you know to be true about something. And yeah, I, you know, it's a, it's, it's a great point, Kitty. I mean, I, I remember in the aftermath of the 2016 election, our students came in the next day, and a lot of them were genuinely freaked out. It occurred to me, I, I thought about it for a few seconds, and it occurred to me that for a lot of my progressive students, they'd never really lost an election, right? So these are these are students who are 20 to 24 years old, and their, their earliest memories were Barack Obama. So that's eight years prior, you know, so they're between 10 and, I guess that'd be 16 years of age, right? When they kind of become politically conscious and Barack Obama wins in 2008 and he gets reelected in 2012. Yeah, these little speed bumps in 2010, but they never really lost. I, on the other hand, have had lots of candidates that I prefer who have lost elections. <laughs> and so it was 
important for me as a professor to kind of take myself back to, you know, 1984, 88, or when, you know, whenever my first election was, and to, to think about that, to put that in context. And so part of what I was, part of what I brought to the table that day was to, to tell them, it's like, look, this may seem like the end of the world now, and I don't want to downplay the consequence of elections. Elections have consequences. But you guys, a lot of you are going to live to be 80 to 100 years old. You're going to lose a lot of elections. And the world doesn't come to an end. You know, you have to live through the next four years, or actually, really, you only have to live through the next two years. And, you know, you might be rewarded for that. But, but it, was, it was interesting to think about that, that, you know, their preferred side hadn't really lost. And the way in which that election unfolded, I think, was particularly jarring to a lot of them. And so it was, you know, there was no point in me going in and saying, oh, come on, I'm an old guy and I've seen a lot of elections. But to try to say, like, hey, this happens in American politics. This is painful as it might be for some of you and as joyful as it might be for a lot of you on the other side. Your victories will come and they will go. And, and life does go on, not to take it for granted, but that there will be another day. I remember, I, I remember meeting with the students after that election. And we, sort of my small circle of faculty, we actually sat in with each other on our classes that next day and the next just to watch how each other were trying to describe that election. And I'm a bit with you, Darren, in the sense that I remember elections my candidate didn't win. I also, to your earlier point about humility, know what it's like to watch somebody who I wasn't certain would be a good leader, in fact, be a good leader, uh, ways in which you watch the institution hem in or constrain a particular individual so that we do live for another day. We will reach our way to another election, but not to be too Pollyanna about it. I think this is a remarkable time, as you suggested when we started. I, I do think this 2020 time is possibly different than the other elections I've participated in. When we have conversations about mail-in ballots, I flash back to hanging chads. Yeah. I flash back <laughs> to other election results that were confirmed by the Supreme Court. And yet I feel like this is a slightly different moment even than those in 2020. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, one of the things I was saying after 2016 was to, to try to reinforce something that I'd said in my classes earlier, and that is these institutions, you don't take them for granted, as I suggested, or they require maintenance. You know, they're, they're not guaranteed they're going to last forever. You, you have to protect them and you have to be wary and vigilant. On the other hand, they're very resilient. And you saw that almost immediately in the Trump administration, which had these executive orders, you know, for instance, on uh, uh, admissions of people from other countries in Syria in particular. And the not even the Supreme Court, lower courts basically invalidated the executive orders. And you had Congress, you know, even controlled by Republicans that couldn't push through some of the keep it. They couldn't repeal the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, I mean, some students hated that. They thought that Trump revolution was on and they were frustrated and other students were joyous. But I, I said, look, this is this is exactly the kinds of things we were talking about in class. You know, now it's, it's, it's actually, I'm in my element. I, mean, I love, I love this stuff. And so when, when my students come in, for instance, we talk about mail-in ballots. What I've been emphasizing recently, for instance, is that it might be controversial, it might not be, but I think the focus is entirely in the wrong place. The focus on the post office to me is completely misplaced. The post office handles infinitely more mail during the Christmas season than they will during the election. The notion that the post office is gonna fall apart is just not gonna happen. 
the Trump administration's antipathy to the post office goes way, and Republicans have always had a problem with the post office, which I've never frankly understood. Post office is in the original constitution. It's not supposed to make money, but but market Republicans kind of look at it and say, but this thing is horribly run, it's inefficient, it loses more money than it should. But, but that's a separate conversation. The capacity of the post office to handle the mail is not the issue. The issue's on the other sides in this election. The issue is on whether voters can correctly adapt to the new procedures that the states are setting up for mail-in ballots. And then it's on the ability of election administrators to receive and accurately count those ballots. And so the reason I kind of give you this example is I love these sorts of conversations with students to say, actually, the conversation that's occurring sort of in the public sphere is in some ways the product of intense partisanship and irrationality on both sides. I mean, you know, why Republicans think mail-in ballots are going to doom them or Democrats think mail-in ballots are going to save them is utterly beyond me. You know, the rules are the rules and you do the best that you can with them, right? So, but in, in class, I think not nearly enough attention is paid to, you know, for instance, my students, I asked a, a set of them not a while back, how many of you have actually mailed a letter in your life? And I got about one in five who said they had never mailed a letter. Oh, that's very impressive. What are you going to do about that? My youngest son, at some point, he was mailing a thank you note to grandma, and he didn't know where the stamp went. <laughs> oh, no. That's what gives me pause about mail-in voting in this election. It's not nefarious plots on one side or the other. It's, you know, you have to get your ballot and put it into an envelope. And even states that are providing postage and these sorts of things, you're going to have a lot of human error. And then on the other end of the spectrum, it's these election administrators who are going to get ballots that are not in the proper envelopes or are not countersigned or have signatures that don't match the name on the file. And then we're going to be yelling and screaming at election administrators, how come you didn't count these ballots? And there's going to be court challenges and that kind of thing. So, I, you know, I think it's funny, Steph, you mentioned 2000. I think in a lot of ways, that's the, the jumping off point for the sort of legalization of American elections, where every campaign now has money set aside for a legal challenge afterwards. And the reality is this is not a new invention. You know, the notion that elections don't come with a margin of error was never I don't know why we ever believed that. Of course, there are questions about, should we count that ballot or not? It's just the 2000 election laid that bare in front of all of us. And because we've had close elections since then, everybody's aware of it. And there's so much information. I mean, in some ways, it's great. I, I think the actual prospect for election fraud is so low right now. Our elections are really transparent in that regard. Uh, the, the, the problem, of course, is we have questions and qualms and concerns about the decisions that are made about counting these ballots, but they're pretty transparent at this point. I think that's as tough as it is to watch that unfold and as long as it now takes, I think that's probably a good thing. I just wish we were a little more in agreement about these things heading in. You know, we didn't have to have these fights afterwards when I know my side needs 150 ballots. That's gonna influence my, my preferences with respect to whether something is counted right or not. That, that polarization I'm really hearing you talk about, Darren, I think is at the heart of maybe some of the, the trepidation amongst faculty right now about kind of moving through this period of time that we we know that there are pretty entrenched ideas on all sides about what's incorrect. And as professors or teachers, as I'm I'm in the arts, so I'm I'm not in politics. So I will say parents were both political scientists. So I was really resonating with your your Oh my my condolences oh, yeah. oh, to yeah. you. <laughs> I grew up uh, deeply entrenched in civil rights work and uh, but anyway 
coming into a class to teach the day after the election, which I do remember teaching that day too. And, you know, and I'm not teaching coursework that is explicitly about politics, though I do think politics and systems of power shape everything we do and teach. Making a space for that, whatever the outcome is going to be, and maybe there is no outcome right away, you know, we are going to be processing it, right? And that it's those interesting questions as professors when you like teach a course that isn't about that particular topic, but you know there's big things going on in the world that is and are impacting, the events are impacting our students in, in really specific ways. Where do you make space for that in the conversation? How do you bring time in or out for that? Do you, do you, have, do you have tips for us other teachers to think about ways to, to process outcomes of political spaces? Well, you know, one of the things that's kind of cool about teaching a, right now I'm teaching the big American government class, but I'll, you know, often teach a campaigns or elections and elections class or political parties class is the regularity of the calendar. So, you know, I know there's an election on November 3rd and I'll try to lean into that. The class I'm teaching is asynchronous, but professor Eric McDaniel, I've taught the, the live stream class. And if we're doing a Monday, Wednesday live stream, we have an election on Tuesday, you know, the notion that we're just going to come in and, you know, talk about bureaucracy on you know, November 4th is, is a non-starter. But how do you, first of all, can you sync up your topic? So for instance, we typically teach constitution, federalism, interest groups up front, and then we'll typically teach institutions after that. But in an election year, because of the calendar, we flip institutions with behavior. And so we'll teach media parties, uh, public opinion voting elections and campaigns before we teach institutions, just so we get that information in in October prior to the election, and which culminates with the election. And then the next week after the election, we'll switch to the, pre- the Congress, then the presidency, then the courts. So, so syncing up the calendar and taking advantage of their native interest in it is one thing. And then what we've done in the past is we've had experts, others come talk, you know, so we'll have a post-election roundtable. So we, and we draw in uh, people from public policy, you know, like Brian Jones uh, in the government department or Sean Theriault or Allison Craig to come and talk about the Congress or Jeff Toulis or somebody to come and talk about the presidency and, and just kind of have a Brian Roberts come and talk about money and politics and just have a roundtable to talk about the election. Because I think students want to hear, you know, they want to make sense of it. And, and, and that helps. Although, Katie, I think one of the things that I would like to do next time I do the live stream is have a student forum. You know, and, and it's, it's tough in a larger class because everybody wants to talk and yet they're kind of intimidated. But the idea of having a student round table with a live chat going on during the round table, and then the professor simply taking the questions and posing them to the students that they're getting from the, from the audience, I think would be pretty good. I mean, I, I, I do think I'm increasingly of the opinion that students need some ownership of the class. And it's, it's, it's tough to do that in larger class, certainly tough to do it, you know, with, with our zoom classes or virtual classes we're running right now. On the other hand, it's not impossible. I mean, it's actually easier because people don't have to physically be, you know, over in Bats Hall or something like that. And the students might feel more comfortable sending questions in via the chat than raising their hands in a, in a live forum where they have to, you know, say something personally, you know. So I think taking advantage of those opportunities and giving them an opportunity to sort of have a conversation about the election. And I do think the one thing that I like to do is, is tell them, like, look, I, you know, we can wail and moan or exult and, and shout in glee. But what I really prefer is how can we connect this up to these larger issues of the, the quality and content of democracy in the United States? What did you see on election night that kind of disturbed you or caught your attention? And to, to take those small observations and connect them up to larger ideas. I think that's what 
That's the utility that, that we have, right, as professors. So that maybe they walk out of the class thinking, oh, I didn't think about, you know, I didn't think about these three or four other things that I could have connected them. This makes me feel a little better. It's, you know, there's some historical precedent that I think that stuff really helps them process it. You know, Otherwise, what's the point of being in a government class if they're not in the day after the election, you got nothing. Your professor gives you nothing, you know. <laughs> In the best way, I think our students right now, they want to be in it with us. They want school to be reflecting as they should, the things that are going on in their lives, that they're experiencing, that they're wondering, that they're questioning. I really hear and appreciate, Darren, the way you're talking about facilitating that dialogue in a way that allows them to think critically, maybe about perspectives or underlying kind of theories or things that are shaping something that's happening that they may not be paying attention to yet. You make me think a lot, too, about you know, the core skills and goals we're working on in any particular course. Like, I'm working on critical thinking. I'm working on this kind of discourse analysis. We can still tie into those conversations, and we're still working on those, as you said, kind of critical, and I often call them creative as well, uh, thinking skills that are a part of what we want our students to be leaving education with beyond facts, right? It's just that kind of way to think critically about the world or engage with it. No, I totally agree. I mean, one of the things I'm, I'm almost certainly going to tee up after the election, because it, it works no matter what the outcome is, is tell me something about the coalitional problems that the Republican and Democratic parties have right now. So it, it doesn't matter who wins or loses, right? If the Republicans lose this election, where is that party heading into 2022 and 2024? I mean, is, is it still a free market kind of limited government, you know, sort of party? Where is it on immigration? If the Democrats win, or even if they lose, frankly, okay, you've got a coalition now that's headed by a guy who kind of represents this old blue collar, lunch pail, union Democratic Party from the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. How much is he going to press for some of the interests of the Obama coalition, this younger LGBTQ multiracial coalition? I mean, can the Democratic Party contain the differences that exist within its coalition. I, I think you could prompt this by basically saying, so what did your side do to screw up? Or what did your side do to win? One of the things that was actually very effective for me, I think, with my Democratic students was to ask them, okay, what went wrong? Essentially, put yourself in the position of, you know, you're, you're a coach, you're a party official. What's the lesson you learned here? What mistakes were made? And, and I think taking them and taking their emotional reaction and channeling and saying, oh, okay, that's fine. I get your pain, but why? What would you have done differently? And why wasn't that done? Was that, an, was that a foreseeable mistake? Or was that something, you know, it was at James Comey's press conference, you could do nothing about it? Or was it that Hillary didn't go to Michigan and Wisconsin? Did she concentrate too much on the Obama coalition and neglect the blue collar lunch pail Democrats? That, I think that conversation actually allows them to channel their angst and their anger in a very constructive way. And so I've kind of got for both sides that in my mind after 2020, what I want to challenge them on, right? I mean, how do you, how do you put Humpty Dumpty together again on, you know, on either side? So this is a helpful example to think about what your classroom might sound like coming right up to and after the election. Some things sparked me. So first, your example was a question where you use the phrase your side. So would you ask a question like that? Do students own up to their side in your classroom? Yep, absolutely. And then what you need to do is also say, okay, 
if you're an independent, if you're a dispassion observer, what did you think of this? What was missing? You know, what did you want to hear from one side or the other that you didn't get? The interesting thing is that this is this is a tough call because the independents in our classes are very unusual. Most independents are marked by the fact they're just not that interested, not that engaged, not that involved with politics. But our students who are independents, and there are some of them like that, actually quite a few of them like that, but there are a lot of our students who are independents who are just conflicted. You know, they see a little bit of, you know, what they like in one side and a little bit in the other side, and they're just not quite sure where they are. But that's actually unusual. One of the things I try to emphasize to them is, is that independents, for the most part, aren't marked by principled ambivalence. It's, it's mostly just politics doesn't speak to them. And I do get, even in this, you know, with a highly educated group, by definition, in this new era, I still get quite a few students in my government class, in my campaigns and elections class, basically just aren't that interested in politics. I mean, I must offer the class at a really agreeable time or something like that, because I, I don't, did you get here on accident? Why are you here? <laughs> Why are you <laughs> They're there to study the political animal? What is this thing? Yeah, did, did you think this was zoology or I'm, I'm not sure, <laughs> but I, I will ask them, you know, put your partisan hat on. Occasionally, and then on other occasions, I'll say, take your partisan hat off. What I like about this line of questioning is it's inviting the students to take that, as you called it, sort of emotional or from our childhood training, our disposition for a particular party, and look at it, examine it. I don't want just the strengths. I want to hear the decisions that were made. These are strategies, and to think then strategically about what this group of people has done. What if a student in your class answers your question but their answer is something that you know is largely a social media-based kind of conspiracy theory. How do you handle the misinformation in your class? I'll ask the students to correct in a lot of instances. So, for instance, let's say somebody, I'll take rather than intentional misinformation, just say a, a very questionable strategic gambit. So I say, well, you know, let's, let's just say uh, the Democrats don't retake the Senate. Right. They, they, they lose by one seat. They, they win a few, but they're still losing 51 to 49 in the Senate. And at this point, they'll have known kind of the battleground states and say, OK, well, one of the big things is they oppose and manage to pick off a few Republicans and stop the Supreme Court nomination from occurring. You know, let's say that is used by people like Cornyn in Texas or Isaacson or others in, or Purdue rather in Georgia to save seat or, or Tillis. In, uh, in North Carolina to save seats that might have flipped the other way. I'll ask, was that the right move? Was that the right move politically? Was that the right to, in terms of the campaign, defend that? And if someone says something like, well, you, you know, if they launch into some conspiracy theory, the students are actually pretty good at, what you'll get is a bunch of giggles in the class when someone says, there is the self-policing. And sometimes I'll just ask, you know, all right, anybody with a different point of view? In other words, you just allow it. I had a professor who used an analogy I really like. He said, like, I feel like teaching a class like flying an airplane. I've got certain passengers that are fabulous. They're sitting up front. They're great. I got a bunch of people who are just there for the ride. And then I've got what my job as a professor is, is to avoid from the old Wesley Snipes movie, Passenger 57. The guy who rushes the cockpit takes over the plane and flies it into a mountain. I think part of what professors have to do <laughs> is just make sure there's no Passenger 57. Because ultimately, that doesn't serve anybody. I, you know, 
if passenger 57 leaves the walks away from the crash, then good for it. But you, you just can't allow that. You have an obligation to the other people in the class. So it is a tough one. I think the problem isn't so much a specific claim articulated in a specific context. It's a, a student who really wants to make his or her point many times and they take up a lot of class time. And you, that's a tough call for any professor, right? To balance that respect for a student's right to articulate a viewpoint in the class without taking up too much time. I'm not actually, you know, Steph, I'm not as concerned about the specifics of their claim because I, I think people, students are pretty good at adjudicating what makes sense and what doesn't. I think the problem is if you let them go on and on. And I, I, I like a sort of a gentle correction. You know, like, okay, okay, that's good. You know, let's get some other viewpoints in here. And you got to allow them a little bit of psych, but you just can't let them go on and on. I love that passenger 57 analogy. It's so great, Darren. And it makes me think about like, <laughs> what are the things we can do to set up a culture in our classrooms to avoid that particular circumstance? I mean, there's lots of different ways of managing difficult dialogues and, and making sure that people have a sort of way to dialogue productively. And, and we all have an ownership to maintain that. I'm responsible for it, sure, as the, as the pilot. But you're all a part of making this flight go as well and be for you and for everyone else as, as I am. Supporting, engaging, making sure that we're all going to push and stretch. Yeah. So I like that idea. Of, and I'll push you a little bit more on these sort of difficult scenarios. Darren, your work has crossed between information that's consumed by the public on TV, in the media, and in academic life. Oftentimes, faculty maybe work largely in research that's going to show up in peer-reviewed journals, but not so much on TV or in the media or in the newspaper. Some can cross both. Um, yours crosses both. Do students ever ask you, well, Professor Shaw, we know that you've worked for presidential candidates. What is your perspective? What is your answer to that question? What do you think about the election of Trump in 2016. Yeah, it, it doesn't come up as often as you might think it would. There's some kind of casual interest, I guess, in, in sort of personal background of the professors. I tend to be pretty direct when asked about those sorts of things, which is, well, but I try to hedge a little bit. So for instance, when people say, well, you know, what's your experience? So I've worked in presidential elections in 92, 2000, 2004, and Google makes it, kind of hard, you know, if somebody wants to learn about it, they're going to learn about you. And I'm actually happy and gratified that they don't seem to have a lot of background information. My sense is that because of what I study, because I've studied campaigns and elections, and because what's happened in, in campaigns and elections, say when I first started studying this in 1992, until now, it, it's unbelievably transformed in just profound ways. You know, I, I teach my colleague, Devin Stoffer, who studies Plato, you know, that so far as I know, Plato hasn't said anything new in 2000 years. And you probably haven't changed your lecture notes since 1975, you know, which he doesn't appreciate very much. <laughs> I, I wouldn't think so. But I have to change my notes constantly. Uh, I mean, and, and the, one of the questions that I have to deal with right now is to what extent is what we're seeing right now just sort of the natural progression of politics? That is the, the, the Twitterization you know, the, the, the movement away from traditional campaign advertising to these social media campaigns. Um, in this campaign, the utter, almost, almost, complete lack of the sort of retail politicking that's been a hallmark of American politics for 200 years. Uh, Joe Biden could win the presidency 
having not really made any kind of effort at retail politicking in eight months, right? Is that a trend or is that just an anomaly? Is it a function of a weird, you know, game show host presidential candidate in 2016, 2020, you know, and a pandemic, or is it a harbinger of things to come? Unless you're close to that game, uh, unless you've, you've been in the arena, I think it's harder to have the perspective that will usefully inform what you need to convey to students. And you know, I, I had opportunities and access to data if I participated that I would not have otherwise had. And so for me, it was an easy professional decision. If you work in these campaigns, you can also take away the data. And as a graduate student, you know, I thought this is a pretty easy decision for me. What surprised me a little bit is that I've, I've continued to have, so I, I worked on these campaigns, but finished my PhD, figured I was kind of done with that stuff as the 90s progressed. But then I had an opportunity to work on one of the network decision desks. And I just sort of thought, this is an aspect of polling. I've done a lot of polling, you know, traditional polling, but I've never done exit polling. I've never done election night polling. And I thought, this is an opportunity to learn something about this. And so my involvement there you know, it was a little bit opportunistic, but it was the same sort of decision, which is, I think this will give me access to data that will allow me to push a, a professional research agenda in a way that I might not otherwise be able to do. And it will inform my ability to teach students. And, and so that's, that's kind of become my criteria over time. I turn a lot of stuff down uh, because it doesn't match the, the two things I need it to match. It has to it has to enhance my research agenda and it has to do something that will be of value to me as a teacher, as a professor. You know, so what's nice now is that my involvement, um, you know, with uh, the running the Fox News poll and the University of Texas, Texas Tribune poll and being on the decision team is that I almost feel like a business with a single client, right? That there's sort of single obligations that I do. They kind of come up predictably on the calendar and it's, Fasting. One of the things I had no idea about when I started working on the decision desk was that it would give me insight into how networks operate, how cable networks operate. And I can't believe how much I, I'd like to say I thought that that was one of the reasons I took the job was I was going to learn about the media. Uh, I didn't think that at all. I thought, like I said, I, this would be good for my classes and I can get some papers and books out of this. But as it turns out, I've really been a student and learned a lot just being around that environment and that stuff's been great with the, and the students are, they like that. They think it's interesting and, you know, yeah, it's, it's fun. Well, and it is so relevant to elections. It's where we're getting that information. And the more avenues now that people have to get information, the more and more important it is to think about who's shaping that information and the decisions that they make as well. The exit poll stuff is I can't believe how central that's become to the 2020 conversation because everybody is is very, very interested in how the networks handle the flow of election night and beyond. We're getting an enormous amount of interest and pressure. The, the interesting thing that is though that, that people are just realizing this. We've been having conversations for nine months now where our group has been telling the network there's a very strong possibility that this election is not going to be decided on election night that it's going to be election week, not election night, and that you need to, to kind of conceive of the broadcast accordingly. So it's kind of fun to be lectured by the Atlantic or the New York Times all of a sudden, you know, about how, oh, have they prepped for this? And it's like, yeah, you know, we, we've, thought, we, we've thought about this for a while now, yeah. We've been thinking about it. 
So you mentioned that you teach the government politics class with Eric McDaniels. So you have another faculty member in the room. Talk to me about team teaching and the conversation about politics. Yeah, Professor McDaniel and I started, I think we were the second class in liberal arts to, to do the big, massive live stream format. Uh, I, I think Penna Baker and, and Gosling did it in, in the intro to psych class. And they came to us because we have the big government 310 introduction to American government. I didn't want to do it alone. I thought I, I can't carry an hour and 15 minute lecture twice a week. It, it's, it's just a little too much. So a thousand students. Yeah. So I, I do campaigns and elections, voting, et cetera. Eric McDaniel does race politics, the black church, public policy. He's got an institutional knowledge. And so substantively, it was a great fit. And then, you know, we get along really well and as colleagues. And so we thought, well, let's give this a shot. And it's, it's worked, I think, very well sort of personality wise in class. And so substantively, you know, the advice, I guess, would be in team teaching is you, you want someone who does things that you don't do, uh, you know, who brings a different perspective and different knowledge to the table. That's, that's just great. And, and i you know, when I go back and teach some of these things, I steal ideas and, and slides and things from, from Eric. And I think he does the same for me. So that, that's been a really nice experience. The other thing is it's, it makes you aware of how to break up a lecture or a class space, Stephanie, right? So the online format lends itself to video content, to visual content. And we've increasingly tried to take advantage of interviews with experts, student roundtables. So just working with a partner and having him or her be able to break up the pace of your lecture and kind of give you a break and give the students someone else, you take that to the next level by thinking, okay, it's not just the two of us in our lectures. We could also go 15 minutes on lecture and then introduce a video, go 15 minutes and then introduce something else. And it gives the students something different. And I think enhances the learning experience. I team teach with somebody else and it also gives us a moment to get back to some of the stuff that you talked about in terms of humility, where there'll be times that I'll say, this is my understanding of the topic, but colleague, you might have some other insights. And sometimes we disagree a little bit which is kind of fun to debate in front of the students. This is one way to approach it. Here's what some other, you know, another idea in that it's, it's a, it creates that dynamic, that humanity, that humility, that learning. I mean, I remember at one point McDaniel was talking about Bexar County and he said, Bexar County said, you mean bear? He goes, is that how you say it? I said, yeah. And that sort of stuff, first of all, it's, it's great because we make mistakes all the time but when you have someone else to correct them in a gentle way, it, it means the students go don't go away with bad information, right? Just because you misspoke or said something wrong. And, and but also if if you have a good relationship with the person, I think it it's a cha- another change of pace. So I like having another set of ears to correct bad information that I would otherwise pass along to the students. And, and then unless they came in office hours and said, what the heck were you talking about here? Darren, this is why Stephanie and I are doing this together. <laughs> Fix it, Katie. No. Well, here, I will I will offer this, though. I, I just listening to both of you talk. This is what we do, right? We listen and then you can kind of take that next scaffold. I'm really struck by the way we've been dialoguing about what I would call it growth mindset. So this idea of modeling for our students that we are ongoing learners. I mean, you're a full professor, Darren. You have a pretty amazing, spectacular career, but you're still out there doing practical work in your field and putting yourself out there to learn something new that then gets to come back and feed your courses and give you a a different way and perspective. And that 
our curriculums are lo- alive too, right? They're not just the dead people, right? That we're yeah. constantly changing and moving and having to pivot. I mean, particularly right now, think about how much we've all pivoted in the last eight months, my goodness, yeah. you know? And I think that freshness and the liveness, the way that engaged practices out in our field, both as researchers and, and practitioners or that kind of sweet spot of combination, which it sounds like you have, is just the best thing we all need to model for ourselves, for our students, that we're all in that kind of process of becoming that. You know, Katie, to your point, one of the things I've been thinking about for a while is, you know, what are we giving our students that they can't get from a TED talk yeah. or from master class, right? I mean, where is the value added? Where's the return on investment to going to the University of Texas? And I'm increasingly of the opinion, you know, I've always thought this, but I, I went on the specific question of value added. I, I really think there's something about having people who are at the, hopefully the top of their field in terms of research, just putting them in front of smart young students and hoping magic happens. I, I actually think that's, that's an incredible model. They make me better. Yeah. <laughs> I say that. <laughs> model. And, and to the extent that, you know, so why are we here as opposed to somebody else? Well, it's because we're supposed to be actively engaging in research in this area. And I think the more we expose them to that and that process and those questions and, and the screw ups and the debates, the better they'll be. I mean, I, I, I like stories where I don't, come out looking real good. Here's how I goof this up because I think it puts them at ease and they understand that people make mistakes, but progress occurs and it's not necessarily devastating to them or their careers that we're all fallible, but we're all trying our best and we can push the ball forward and, you know, so give it your best shot, right? That makes so much sense to me. My last question, and we don't have to take this if we don't have time. Do you feel that students are politically engaged in a different way now than they were when you first started teaching? There's no question. I'm not big on generations. I've always thought, you know, oh, here's the millennials and here's Gen Z and here's how they're distinct. I, I, I think that's an invention of, you know, people who want to sell books. But I do think there's been a shift over the last 10 years, a very profound shift in how young people think about politics and and their expectations about politics. So, well, I just said, I don't really believe in this notion of generations, but, but there's something about the way this particular group came up and the what they were exposed to. I don't know whether it's because they're products of sort of a 9-11 childhood and then, you know, a economic collapse in the late 2000s or something like that, but th- there's sort of an urgency and an impatience. I, I do talk and research a little bit on this, so I do think they hold a responsibility to make world peace is a big claim, right, that young people want, thank goodness. And, you know, this generation in particular doesn't think that world peace is just something they want. It's something that they're responsible to make happen. Like, I think there's a there's a sense of responsibility that folks often find when they're studying this. I, it, I'm not an expert in that area, but I, I, I've done a little bit of work in that. And I, I think that's an exciting part about youth culture right now. And this, yeah. you know, Gen Z or they have skin in the game. Yeah, uh, that jives completely with my experience. What does that create in the classroom? What sort of challenges or opportunities does it create? You know, there's a lack of deference to what we say. I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, I I, I like to distinguish between cynicism and skepticism. I think there's a skepticism about what anybody says about politics. I don't think it's a cynicism. Like a cynicism, the distinction is cynicism is, okay, what's, what's, why are you saying that? Who who bought and sold you? I don't think that's what I sense, but there is a, I'm not going to believe what you say just because you're standing behind a lecture at the University of Texas. I, I think it's important for us to be generous in our interpretation of that lack of deference, if, if that makes sense, right? That not to get offended, 
Not to assume that they're, you know, these kids today are, they're just punks and they don't know what I know. No, no, no. It's reasonable to ask us to explain why we think that or why we say that. And I think it's actually been a good thing. I think it's a, it's an opportunity, but it is a little bit of a challenge because there are some things where you might unnecessarily have time to give the entire pedigree behind a particular line of thinking. And there are some things, it'd be nice if you just cut me some slack and went with this for a few minutes. But it does force us to really be careful in what we're claiming and understand the provenance of it. I think it's higher standards. Maybe that's the best way to put it. I don't think students are customers, but I do think there's a customer service aspect to what we're doing, right? They're not customers, they're students, but they do have kind of power and we have an obligation to them that's kind of more as if they're customers, right? And I don't mind that. I don't mind accountability that's demanded from the tower. I don't mind accountability that's demanded from the legislature. And I don't mind the accountability that's demanded from students. You know, we all know it's a little bit of a hassle sometimes, <laughs> but I think it's good in the long run. Awesome, Darren. Thanks. That was a really engaging conversation. I appreciate thinking through your own work, but what that does in the classroom. And I like how you are bringing perspective to the current events polls. If there's anything that is timely, it's a poll that's taken right now. And yet you put it in this perspective of history, of scholarship. So we say, how is this like some other episode in the past? And that allows us to draw parallels and draw lessons and explore this time with our emotions in the conversation and yet with some good traditions of analyzing and synthesizing those events. I appreciate it. Well, I, I thank you, Stephanie. It's, it's always a pleasure talking to you. And it's even more of a pleasure to kind of have a nice forum like this. You know, I, I, I think politics are fun. Sometimes it's, it's hard to remember that because, you know, the highs are high and the lows are low. But most of the students who are in these classes who are really engaged, honestly, they're just, they think politics are fun. And I think politics are fun. And sometimes professors are afraid to say that. They'll, they'll pretend they have some high-minded reason for being in political science. But the reality is, is at some point, they thought it was fun, interesting, cool. And so why not leverage that? I mean, why, why make it dry? Why take, so the question is, how do you link that? How do you take that emotion and that energy and that interest and, and channel it in a way so that they can get some satisfaction from political engagement, right? Maybe a career in politics, but certainly, you know, to be informed citizens and to advocate for policies that they want to see enacted. And so why not leverage that? So Katie, tell me what resonated with you from that conversation. Gosh, Steph, there was a lot. First and foremost, I was really struck by the importance of supporting a deeper understanding of systems in our courses, because many systems, as we know, and are talking finally quite a bit about are deeply problematic and unjust in this country, and they shape a very particular experience for folks who are already historically marginalized. So I, I was just really struck by Darren's comments and commitment to asking not just how or what you think, but why you think it and asking other people to think about someone's comments and, and why and where those comments might be coming from. That kind of magical phrase of, so what makes you say that? Or who has another thought about this? Or what's another perspective we might have? 
was really reminded how essential that is to the kind of critical thinking that we're all working in our classes and courses. And particularly when you're talking politics and talking in a pretty polarized setting right now where real people are having real feelings and real impacts, I think that's just essential. So true, Katie. What does great safe spaces mean to you? That's a good question. It's a phrase you said a number of times, which I really appreciate. And it's something we talk a lot about in my my drama program, because we're, we're doing a lot of work around social justice. And part of social justice work, I think, is having difficult dialogues. And when we talk about safe and brave spaces, we really are talking about creating an environment where everyone feels comfortable expressing themselves and participating fully, you know, without fear of attack and without any sort of denial of their experience. And I think that that's the really sticky bit sometimes is when you're from a privileged space or when you have privilege in a conversation, sometimes we don't even realize that what you're saying denies someone else's experience because you haven't experienced that yourself so much. You know, we need to own intentions and the impact of those intentions in conversation. We need to recognize that there is controversy with civility. I mean, ways to be really in dialogue with one another, I think, is key. Well, Katie, from the time that we spoke with Darren, yeah, this conversation where you and I are reviewing that discussion, we yeah. have had a presidential debate. Oh, yes, we have. This is the most important election in the history of our country. Really? The first presidential debate, a political clash, months in the making, is about to begin. Fasten your seatbelt. It's going to be a bumpy night. <laughs> First presidential debate of the 2020 election. And as I was watching the debate, I was hearing Darren's words about strong institutions. When we spoke with him, he talked about not taking our institutions for granted and that our institutions require maintenance and need to be protected. We need to be vigilant. And I couldn't help but think during the debate about some of those institutions and how democracy depends on a variety of institutions. You talked about meaningful participation in the classroom. That is another thing that matters in elections, meaningful participation in elections. And we need to be vigilant about those important struggles for inclusion and meaningful enfranchisement of all people. And what does voting mean when there's inequalities, grave and meaningful disparities and access due to historical injustices? We know that democracy is not a formula. It is in our law and in our constitution and in our electoral rules. But it demands, like Darren was talking about, a constant push and pull to ensure that people aren't left behind. Stephanie, you inspire me to want to vote and to be a good citizen. I hear you talk about this a lot, about the importance of helping our student generation continue to be engaged in politics too, particularly folks who come from historically marginalized identities, to be active and engaged in in making change and making that democracy. That's right. And our work includes voting. Yeah, but it also includes, as Darren suggested, being vigilant about these institutions. So a judiciary that enforces the law throughout the country, a president who serves everybody, whether Democrat or Republican. And those that debate was remarkable in the ways in which we might be wondering about the strength of our election. And we might begin to feel this questioning of the fundamental expectations of our election that the winner 
gets to govern and the loser lives to fight another day. I appreciated Darren's understanding that our elections are transparent and that prospects for election fraud is really low for Darren. The institutions are by and large working. Um, he suggested we might have some human error, but in the meantime, I think we should work really hard to ensure that those institutions hold up because these are unprecedented times. We need to vote. We need to vote. We need to have a plan. Where and when are you going to vote? Well, with that in mind, it was great talking with you and always good to hear from the other side of the campus. Thanks, Katie. You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information and to provide feedback, please visit us online at texasptf.org. Thank you. Thank you.